Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 31st episode of In The Between. My name is Nadia. And this is Danny. And today we're going to be talking about Vogue. Vogue. <laughs> I realize now that we're lagging again, but it should be fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so of course we are still in our circuit breaker. Actually, quite um, sadly, we have had to extend our circuit breaker, which was just announced, um, was it yesterday? The days are blending into each other. I yeah, I'm losing track of days, so it's like some, yeah. sometime. In, in the yesterday or the past couple of days, uh, it was announced that we will have an extension of the circuit breaker until um, early June. Yeah, so it's a bit of a downer, but we are still trying to keep our spirits up. And what better way than to dive into, you know, some positive news we've heard. Uh, we heard that Vogue Singapore is going to be revived. Woo! <laughs> so there's this uh, wonderful little article, oh, I know, on, on Medium by this fashion journalist called Weichi Yap, who is also going to be part of the Vogue team. Um, okay. And uh, she wrote an article about how books Singapore insidiously entered and left our fashion media scene. I highly recommend it. Um, it's online. And she has some really interesting facts and very critical and great analysis about why, what was great about Singapore Vogue and why it was just not the right time for it. And some of mm. the things that were brought up was that the Singapore edition was kind of run still by the Sydney office um, because Vogue Australia, which started in 1959, was more established and um, they were kind of still basing everything there. So the content was still not truly very Singaporean or done by Singaporeans. And um, so although mean, the 1990s... So Vogue Singapore opened in September 1994 and and closed in January 1997. And the 90s were a great time for Singapore fashion, Singapore models. But unfortunately, we also know that in the late 1997-98, there was the great financial crisis that affected Asia very much. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, now many years later, well, how, how long is it now then? 20 plus 6. Well, like 26 years ago, it began in Singapore. 20. And yeah, yes, and yes. then, yeah. And now it's going to be back again under the editorship of Norman Tan, who was previously editor of Bureau 24-7 and then Esquire, and now, of course, Vogue. So we're all really excited to see what's going to happen with that. It's slated for its launch later this year. Um, but of course, mm -hmm. as Danny was talking about, you know, Vogue Australia beginning in the 1950s. And, you know, you might be curious to know about the long and illustrious history of Vogue. So Vogue began in America. Um, it began in December 1892. And yeah, so that's really long ago. And it's, you know, still an institution. And then we have also, you know, other Vogues around the world. Um, I I think the second oldest Vogue would be British Vogue, which started in September 15th, 1916. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, there are all these 
um, dates that kind of like occur in the middle of the month because I believe in the past book was a magazine that was published twice a month, you know, which sounds pretty incredible mm, yes. because, yeah, right now, yeah. you know, even if, yeah, because you're like, wow, that's commitment, you know, and there must be like a lot of interesting content. Um, and also interestingly, if you if you realize the the Vogue's that started in Britain in 1916, and also Vogue in Singapore, it started in with a September issue, and of course, the September issue is usually the bumper issue, where you have like lots of content and lots of advertising. Um, so actually, I'm looking at this really wonderful document called Vogue Timelines. It's by Janine Button and it's in the journal Fashion Theory, the Journal of Dress, Body and Culture. And Janine works in the Vogue Library. That sounds like such a dream job, actually. Yeah. So she's the, yeah, she has been the library and archive manager since 2002. And what they do is they organize the photographic material in the library. They help with picture research for magazines and books. And so she put together this really helpful timeline. And I just wanted to bring up some interesting things. Um, so let's say, starting with American Vogue, in 1914, um, Edna Woolman Chase became the editor-in-chief of American Vogue, and she would hold this position till 1954, so for 40 years. Wow. Yeah, and so it's like from the beginning of World War One to the Great Depression, through the interwar years to World War Two you know, with all the amazing changes that came along with that for fashion, she was, yeah. you know, at the helm of this magazine. Yeah, so it's quite incredible. And of course, um, someone whom I love is Diana Vreeland, and she was the editor-in-chief mm. from 1963 to 1971. And I think when we started talking about doing this Vogue episode, we immediately thought of that why don't you column yes. that Vreeland had. So if you're not familiar with this words, why don't you? And the thing is, actually, I hear it referenced quite a lot in fashion magazines or in like, you know, fashion shows, um, this idea of why don't you? So it was this really funny kind of column that Vreeland did where she would ask people to do things or to consider doing things that they wouldn't think of doing um, <laughs> just to spice up one's life. And she was also known for giving these like really quotable one-liners you know <laughs> um about how for example it's you know it's okay to be vulgar but it's not okay to be boring i think oh, i'm definitely paraphrasing here but yeah <laughs> she did have these wonderful lines that she gave yeah. she had very yeah. wonderful yeah very as you say quotable and the why don't you columns were very whimsical and of course very at times very outrageous something like mm -hmm. why don't you wash your daughter's hair in champagne or something like that you know that's right, to keep it blonde or something, right? Like people do in front. <laughs> I think that was what it was. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, looking down this timeline, another um, major sort of moment was in August 1974 when Beverly Johnson became the first African-American model on the cover of American Vogue. So yes. that's something as well that's really interesting. And then, of course, in 1988, Anna Wintour became the editor-in-chief, a post she holds to this day. Yeah, it's really amazing how many of the editors hold their posts for decades and really journey through the magazine and kind of as women or now men who are helming the magazine, they will kind so of true. mature with the magazine and um, go through all these societal changes at the same time and 
it's really it really shows that it takes time to build something and we're always thinking about immediate success but things take time to develop voices and to develop a point of views yeah for sure i mean you were just telling me about um british vote right um, yes. about how recently there's been a lot of um issues that are focused on um, the black community. Maybe you want to talk to us more about that. Yeah, so Edward Enningful um, joined British Vogue uh, after Alexandra Shulman mm-hmm. uh, kind of controversially was asked to leave or quit <laughs> after mm-hmm. working there for 25 years. And Edward Enningful has been in the fashion industry for decades. Like His first foray into fashion was when he was 16 years old. He was scouted um, on the streets in London um, for an ID issue, and he modeled in the magazine in 1991 in this amazing um, editorial um, where he was photographed with other black men in different um, neighborhoods in London wearing this really, really beautiful uh, styled uh, high-low clothing that ID is so well known for. And he was the youngest fashion editor of in of ID at 18 years old and he was there for like 20 years before he joined W magazine yeah Mm -hmm. and in W magazine I remember one of my most favorite editorials was by him directed by him as well where Nicki Minaj is reimagined as an 18th century courtesan so she Mm -hmm. has like this kind of Marie Antoinette hair and like these mantuas and she's looking really regal and picturesque and in 2015, I saw this exhibition at the Black Cultural Heritage Center called Black Georgians, The Shock of the Familiar. And they were talking about image making and how we're not used to seeing um, Black people in this kind of uh, very royal and kind of um, luxurious portrait. And we're often used Sorry, to seeing them in other types of situations. Which you cut out for a bit over there. The, um, maybe just talking about, oh, no. yeah, okay. just describing what you just did, that whole chunk. <laughs> um, Nicki Minaj or Black Cultural Center? Mm-hmm. Um, after the Nicki Minaj. Okay. Okay. So mm-hmm. the seeing the portraits of Nicki Minaj as an 18th century courtesan reminded me of this exhibition at the Black, Black Cultural Center mm-hmm. in London in 2015 where they were talking about Black Georgians, the shock of the familiar, and how they were also showing similar portraits of Black uh, women in uh, who were part of the royal court, and how they were talking about how we were not often used to seeing women portrayed in this kind of situations um, and this kind of light, and instead we're always used to seeing them as the servants or like you know people with no power. And to change this narrative. I feel like it's something that uh, Edward Enningful understands very much to change the narrative of how Black people are portrayed. And so mm-hmm. he really champions diversity and style and youth and energy. And he's been um, including many different um, conversations into British book and also acknowledging uh, his presence acknowledges the deep, deep, relationship and the deep influence that the Black community has had in Britain since the the immigration of Blacks from um, Jamaica and the different colonies. Mm. 
Yeah, I think it's really important for magazines to portray, I guess, you know, visualizations um, that we might not otherwise see, right? In the media, mm-hmm. there is this responsibility that they have um, to kind of show us a different side of things. And also as readers, if you look at what is on, on the pages, you know, it normalizes what it is that's beautiful, for instance. Yes. Which is also important because it's such a individual, isolated kind of experience, like flipping through a magazine in the comfort of your own home and, you know, flipping through the pages, pausing at certain things that catch our attention or, you know, kind of just seeing what's presented to us and making our own conclusions from there. Yeah, and so So, many young kids stumble upon their parents' magazines or see all these images and fashion magazines have often been a place of like whimsy and aspiration mm -hmm. and to see yourself or like a different truth being portrayed in the magazines, um, it's very empowering and it can be a memory that you hold on to for a long time. Yeah, and beyond just, you know, having something mirrored back to oneself, it's also about kind of realizing like, oh, the world is bigger than, you know, my immediate surroundings or my immediate environment. I think that's also been one of the things I enjoyed about magazines growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of having that like, oh, okay, I didn't know this existed and I didn't know, you know, people looked like this somewhere else and, you know, everyone has their own beauty, right? And it's like a celebration of that. Yes. Yes. So, of course, with that in mind, there have also been many controversies with Vogue fashion spreads and Vogue covers. Um, yeah. but maybe before we talk about all of the controversies that have come up from there, why don't we talk about um, our favourite covers? Yeah. Do you um, have... Well, I have a couple that I really like. Um, I really like the one from 1932. It's American Vogue then, but it was um, July 20th, 1932, and it was uh, the first photographic cover in British Vogue by Edward Steichen. And it's this very dynamic image where a woman is sitting um, in what looks like a swimsuit, um, and she has a ball kind of held above her head and it's right next to the word Vogue and it's against this really beautiful blue-white gradation. Um, and I, what I really like about this is the dynamism of it. And of course, it came around a time when there was an emphasis on keeping fit and being active. So that's one of my favourites. Uh, and then fast forward to, I think this was the 1990 cover by Peter Lindbergh. So this is... British Vogue again, and it's the cover of the five ninety supermodels. Mm, um, very iconic. Yeah, it's a very iconic one, and yeah, I think that's those are two of my top. Mm. For me, what about for you? I really love. Um, it's very strange because they are all not photographic covers. So one of my mm-hmm. favorite ones is Salvador Dali's um, covers for Vogue mm. in nineteen ninety four. Um, he did four covers for them and 1944 was the time of kind of like the, towards the end of World War II so it was a very uncertain time and the, the people had been going through World War II for a few years by then and yet folk continued and I love this cover because he's had, he uses his um his symbols and his play on perspective to create this 
really whimsical cover and the cover has the letters, um, the, the title Vogue in all illustrated in different, to look like different shapes. And there is like some cloth that kind of joins them together. And there's these birds that fly off into the distance kind of symbolizing, symbolizing mm. hope. And um, again, there's this perspective that draws the eyes towards something further. So as if saying that we are almost there towards the end, you know? Yeah. And I also love that it kind of marks this time in fashion where fashion and art were very, were kind of playing off each other. So Salvador Dali's um, kind of collaboration with Elsa Schiaparelli were really uh, very, very powerful and very beautiful to see how they played, how surrealism and fashion really could um, work so well together. Mm. I also love, I think we both uh, love this one, um, Vogue Italia's January cover. Yeah, so, so this one is... more than one, um, right? Depending... Yes, there were um, actually seven covers that you could get, and they were all illustrated by different artists. So there were... I mean, you didn't um, get Vanessa the one you wanted, No, I didn't. <laughs> I wanted to get the one with Cassie Namoda, um, but okay. instead, I ended up getting David's uh, cover, which is this collage painting. And there was this one by Yoshitaka Amano as well. That was very wonderful. And Delphine mm -hmm. the Sun, which had this strong red cover with a black woman's face in the, in the forefront. Paolo Ventura's cover was very, uh, quite realistic and featured a really beautiful fringed dress. And... Milo Manara's cover um, with the model Olivia Vinton also had this kind of very realistic watercolor print on it. Right. And I mean, it's interesting why they wanted to do, um, it wasn't just a cover that was illustrated for this Vogue Italia issue. Uh, it actually made a really strong statement about moving towards sustainability. So... Um, I'm just looking at this Time article about the reason for doing this um, illustration issue. And it was really because the magazine team decided that there was just too much traveling, shipping, pollution in general to mm -hmm. put together all the photo shoots um, that were going to a typical Vogue issue. And so they thought instead of doing that, they would save the money from all the travels and all the expenses that came with that to finance a project. Um, and this was the restoration of the Fondazioni, um, okay, I cannot pronounce this properly, I'm sure, um, Karini Stampalia in Venice, which was severely damaged by the recent floods um, mm -hmm. at the time. So, yep, they asked seven artists to do the cover, each piece featuring a model wearing Gucci clothes. And it was interesting how, you know, the images spanned, like you've mentioned already, the mediums of painting, drawing, graphic design, comic book design, and collage. Yes. And, you know, and this is very interesting to me because it was like going back to the roots of Vogue, right? So like yeah. years and years ago, I mean, like earlier I said that my one of my favorite covers is the first photography cover, which was in 1930s. 
But, you know, Vogue had started in the late 1800s. And before there were photographs, um, you know, there were fashion illustrators, right? Yeah. Like, I love um, George Lepap, for instance. Um, and they would illustrate these clothes, you know, in these really whimsical signature styles. So, like, just like photogra- photographers have their styles of photographing images, illustrators have their signature styles that you can immediately recognize, um, if you see if you see it on on the pages of a magazine, yeah, yeah. So it was it was really such an amazing kind of initiative, and of course, it immediately became a collector's item, right? To have this kind yeah. of issue. And personally, I just feel like um, you know I used to love reading magazines as a teenager, just because they seem to open up into worlds I didn't know about. You know, I would buy these foreign magazines. Um, at you know specialist sort of book stands or magazine stands and it was such a thrill to flip through them you know to like open up that perfume um you know those perfume tabs yeah <laughs> and then you rub yeah and you know then you see all these beautiful images and know what's going on and be invited into these amazing worlds but you know, I haven't been inspired by um, magazines of late because I just find it so cookie cutter, and I'm so over the fact that like most covers are just like a celebrity on it. Yes. Yeah. And so it's just so flat and like uninspiring. Yeah, and it's really I I love this issue so much as well. Like this Ita- Vogue Italia issue, um, so mm. much so that I bought it because like you, I I hardly buy magazines nowadays. I would read them in the library if I have to just to keep updated but to own the magazine it really um and it was quite it, it, I mean I had to go through a lot of lengths to get a copy of it and I was mm. so happy when I got it even though I didn't get the cover that I wanted and in the inside of the magazine that as you mentioned some of the editorials were painted or collaged and it's quite amazing how the brands that are obviously advertisers to to Italia, kind of um, were, are so open and receptive to to have their garments portrayed in this manner because we've been reading in the past few years about how many brands hate having their clothes being cross-styled with other brands or mm. they're they quite particular about how their clothes are portrayed. And this issue kind of um, gives really creative freedom to the artist to portray clothes as more than just garments but as a uh, mood a feeling uh, uh yeah. yeah and even though not the whole magazine i mean there's still a lot of photographs in the magazine and that's because they are advertisements that have already been photographed but mm-hmm. when you look at the editorials that were painted um it's really like having a piece of art in your hands yeah for sure um I thought also that, you know, we can talk about some controversial issues, I guess. Um, Oh, Italia is the mother of controversy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I just watched the Franca documentary about uh, Vogue Italia's uh, previous um, editor, Franca Sozani, who was at Vogue Italia for 28 years until her early death in 2016. And the mm-hmm. documentary is made by her son. So it's really intimate. It's a really beautiful portrayal of the woman, Franca Sozani. And 
many of the people who are in the documentary who were have very close collaborators in Vogue Italia, like Bruce Weber, Peter Lindbergh, Paolo Roversi, spoke of how she trusted them and she gave them all this creative freedom to create all these images. And mm. yes, like you said, many of them were very controversial. Yeah. And I mean, controversy sort of follows Vogue wherever it goes because it's such um, it's such a big name, you know, and everyone feels like they they can have an opinion about it. So um, another issue that I... Well, maybe you can talk about one of the first issues. So there was a Vogue Hong Kong launched uh, last year and its very first issue was already, um, you know, steeped in controversy. So its first mm. Vogue... Uh, well, the first Vogue Hong Kong cover featured Gigi Hadid. And this was really frowned upon because she had been accused in 2017 of racism in China for posting a video supposedly of herself screwing up her eyes to mimic the Buddha. And yeah, so when the image was released on Instagram of her on the cover of Vogue Hong Kong, there was so much um, backlash that I think it was deleted. Wow. You know, yeah. And and actually, it's, it's an interesting choice as well. Sometimes I don't get it, you know. Me neither. Why, yeah, why would Vogue Hong Kong feature Gigi Hadid? Like, you know, is she from Hong Kong? I yeah. mean, are there no other Hong Kong models or celebrities um, who can be on the cover? Because you would think that if you want to reach out to the Hong Kong audience, you would put someone who's iconic in Hong Kong, right? Yeah, it's such to an old Hong- mentality to keep riding on what is successful in the West because what makes Vogue successful is when they find a strong voice that relates to their immediate readership and then other people want to get inspired and to find out more about other places. But if your Vogue looks just like any other country, why would they read that? And I think it's something that yeah, and I think that's something that Vogue Italia really understood. Like, you know, until now, Vogue Italia is obviously purely in Italian, so not everybody understands Italian, but they use the power of images to kind of communicate. And she knew this very early on that she had to make strong images if she wanted to stand out um, from mm. the rest of the Vogue's. Yeah, I don't know. It's all very strange. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if we think about the upcoming Vogue Singapore, uh, it has mm-hmm. announced that it will focus on the Southeast Asian fashion industry, mm-hmm. which I think is very smart. I mean, yes. it's something that we've also been doing uh, with our own teachings, right, at LaSalle, because we know that like the Singapore market is only as big as it is. It's a very, we're a very, very small city-state. Yes. Um, and, of course, kind of like branching out to think about the fashion industry in Southeast Asia will uh, give it that much more room to play with, to support more um, fashion designers and other people who hold equally important jobs in the industry. So I'm really excited to see what Norman and his team come up with for the Me first too. issue. Yeah, I don't know when it's going to come out exactly because, I mean, now with like the, the extended pandemic. circuit breaker yeah. and like... I mean, yeah, so everything is super uncertain, but I think they're going to make it happen before um, the year ends and it will be something to celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So I guess we'll stop right there. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you so much for listening. 
And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. You just have to search In The Vitrine. And do follow us on Instagram at In The Vitrine for images that relate to what we discuss. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.